0: Welcome back to Down the Rabbit Hole. I'm William. I'm here again with Samantha. Hi, Samantha.
1: William.
0: And this week we are joined by Mona Muro. Hi, Mona.
1: Hi, William. And hi, Samantha. And
0: Mona has been on the podcast before. She's been on episodes talking about white supremacy culture. So go back to season one, find out a little bit about Mona. But Something about Mona is that she works on economic justice work. And so that's what we're going to talk about today. We haven't done an episode on the podcast about economic justice or EJ, as we might call it. And we think it's a really important topic to cover. So instead of doing Mona's big, who are you, where are you from intro? Because again, go listen to the white supremacy episodes. We're going to jump straight into our icebreaker before we do that, let me offer a small trigger warning. Economic abuse is something that survivors deal with that often goes unrecognized and unnoticed. And so, but that's what we're going to be talking about. We're going to be talking about the way finances and economics are leveraged in abusive situations and how our movement can help survivors address that. And we also might be talking about some intersections of other oppressive systems like white supremacy, of colonialism. And so if at any point in this episode you feel like you need to take a break, please step away, uh, take care of yourself, and come back to the episode whenever you're ready.
2: Thanks for that, William. So our icebreaker question today in the theme of money and what it would be like to have it, if you were to win the lottery, what is something you would do for yourself? We're not like solving world problems with this. So, just like something for yourself that you would purchase if you won like big money lottery. Mona? Oh.
1: Big money, big money. So I was thinking about it, and you were saying that I was thinking of that game where it's like big money, big money, no whammy, stop. And you know, all those different prizes come up, and like new cars and trips, and like today, right now, this moment at four fourteen p.m. I'm gonna say, if I won the lottery, I would take an uninterrupted vacation for at least a month and kind of go to those bucket list places, no agenda, just unscripted month worth of vacation, peace out, see you later, worry about all the things at a later time. That would be my, where my money would go right now as I'm thinking about the thing to spend some money
2: on myself. I love that. What would be your first stop?
1: So my first stop would probably be Grace, just because this place that I, that I went to like three years ago, 2019, was my second to the last international trip. I follow them on Instagram and so the owner is pop is like popping up and like on my Instagram feed and he's showing me all these new things they're doing you know he's doing his property and stuff like that and so I'm just like I want to go back and I always said that I would go back once I ran out of my Greek spices I brought a whole bunch of Greek spices back with me also note to self when you bring back a whole bunch of spices from a different country sometimes they get flagged as other things and go through like customs all weirdly so yeah (laughs) so I've run out of my spices to go back and get my awesome, great spices. And yeah, so I would say Greece, and then I would TBD. But you know what? A nice running a nice boat or something would be good to like go around all the different islands. So it'd be super fun. That'd be where I go.
2: I feel relaxed already, just picturing it in my mind. <laughs> oh my gosh. Okay, William, what about you?
0: Yeah, I think my first thought would be probably to buy a house, but I feel like that's not, that's still what I would consider a responsible answer. And I also don't know where I would want to buy a house. Like I'm based in Austin right now, but I don't know if I want to be in Austin forever. And so, granted, I guess you can always sell a house. Anyway, it's a whole thing. I would it's also considering travel and like what that because I've only been out of the country once, and I would like to see other places. I think for me, just to piggyback on the line of questioning with Mona about like the first stop, I think I would really want to go to New Zealand first. Would be my first. Stop.
2: What's the one place you've been? South Africa. Wow, okay. That's cool. Yeah. Um, <laughs> okay.
0: It was a very yeah. long flight. Um and so I'm just trying to match that energy, I guess, by trying to get to New Zealand.
2: But well there you go. So I do love traveling. However, I'm also very tired. <laughs> So, (laughs) so like drumming up the energy to travel and like take a however many hours long flight it is to New Zealand and South Africa and Greece might not be in the cards for me right now. So if I had to choose like today, what I would do, I think I would outsource everything I could, like all of my minor inconveniences of my day-to-day life. I would pay somebody to do for me. So like I would just like, oh, if I need something to be sent to the post office, I've got a post office person. If I like need somebody to go, like a chef, like a personal chef and like somebody to clean my house and somebody to do like all of the things that being an adult means that you have to, like all those not fun things would outsource so that I could do other things that are more fun. <laughs> That's what I would do. Uh, yeah. I heard a personal assistant and a show. Oh, yeah. Yeah. yeah that sounds great. Gardener. Yeah. Like all the things. Yeah. A chauffeur. Oh, my gosh. So I don't have to drive anymore. Gosh.
0: See, I do. I like would just drive. like,
2: I would be as bougie as possible. Be like, I don't know. Take me places. I don't want to do the things anymore.
1: <laughs> I like it.
2: I'm I'm revising
1: mine to add on also hire a personal
2: assistant and there you go. <laughs> at least <laughs> a personal assistant.
0: I'd be your personal assistant. You can hire me for that.
2: And you have to go, you have to have your personal assistant with you on the trip. That's right. So there you go. So (laughs) William's like, I get both. Exactly. (laughs) Cool. That's how you do it. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Share the wealth. (laughs) All right, Mona. So we're talking about the concept of money and like economic justice and what that means for survivors. So I'm going to pass it over to you and you can kind of do just like an intro to what your thoughts are behind that and what you want to bring to today's episode.
1: Yeah, Thanks, Samantha.
2: So as I was
1: thinking about what we could be talking about today on this podcast, and a lot of things came up. And when we talk about economic justice, just economics in general is such a broad term. I, I find it super interesting because I reflect back on kind of my first days at tcfe working in this particular subteam and remembering the fact that the work used to feel like it was so much because economics could touch everything and it really does there was you know like a hot minute that i was you know just like man anything and everything just kind of gets thrown in economics because it's a catch all And I had a catchphrase for a little while, which it's it's ridiculous now, but I was like, hashtag economics is everything. And I would put in my little emails and stuff like that, just because it was my way of kind of really acknowledging that this touches, you know, so many things. And this was several years ago before COVID. And I've always done economic work at domestic violence shelters, and then also here at TCFB. And when COVID hit, it really kind of opened up my eyes to how, you know, expansive this work is. And I feel like it for the first time really brought in everybody to this work because it was at that point that we really started looking at economics for all of us and what that meant because everyone was touched because of this global pandemic, not just from the public health standpoint, but from an economic standpoint. So it has been an interesting evolution in this work. And when I first started doing a lot of this work, it looked a lot differently than what it does now. But as I began a lot of these conversations, some of the first things that I ever started to think about and the kind of first framing that I like to, for us to consider today as we talk about this is, when were the first times that we each started thinking about money and our money messages? or interactions with financial systems. That's something that prior to kind of coming into the work, I don't think I gave a lot of thought to. And I think it's something that as an adult, we think about all the time. We're living, breathing, and moving through our world minute to minute with finances or financial institutions, economics, and, and money touching us. And so I want us to start there for me. It was one of those those things as a kid that I received a lot of different kind of money messages growing up. I grew up in a very poor household, essentially, that the messages that we were told just straight up is that we don't have money, we're poor. And in particular, my dad used to always also say, like, if you don't have physical money on you to pay for it, you don't buy it, you don't need it. And that in of itself isn't necessarily a bad message to be brought up with. And one of the things that I remember and I have seen kind of to this day is that that philosophy of if you don't physically have it on you in your pocket, then you don't need it. That meant for my dad and for myself and for other people in our family, that that was leading out our access and our ability to engage with financial, financial institutions. And what we know today is that we have to live in a world where credit and finances is something that we engage with on a regular basis. Because everything nowadays has to do with credit. They run your credit report for jobs nowadays, right? You need credit to be able to access a utility connections and so forth. So that was one of the biggest money messages that I grew up with. And that really... Impacted the decisions that I made as an adult moving forward. How I engaged with financial systems. How I didn't take out credit for a really long time, and then when I finally did, I didn't really know anything about it because I wasn't raised with with that knowledge and information. And another key piece and another message that I walked away with as a kid, you know, and into adulthood, was my mom taught me never depend on anyone else for money and for things. That it is your responsibility and yours alone to take care of yourself economically and financially. And again, on its face, not a bad thing. It's that great, simplistic concept. But what that did is it had later impacts on me financially. I would say uh, it had later impacts on my relationships, and in particular, my romantic relationships. And so as we're thinking about the survivors that we're working with, domestic our domestic violence work, relationships healthy and unhealthy, when we're thinking about economics for me, that's one of the messages I grew up. I grew up with my mom saying, don't ever let a person that you're dating ever control your money. Don't ever let a person that you're dating inhibit your ability to do things. It is your responsibility to take care of yourself. Even one of those easy kind of things on a date should say, like, don't ever let them pay for you because if they pay for you, they're going to you know, expect something. And this is something I heard a lot in, in particular in, in my family's Latin and Latin culture And so these messages we take in, we adopt, and it's important to recognize these and kind of acknowledge these things because those messages impact our behavior and our behavior impact other things, right? And it's not just individual experiences or choices. It's also in relation to the systems that we're operating in. So society, social norms, And et cetera, et cetera. So I wanted to make sure that we kind of start off with that particular framing because it gives us a touch point to really recognize not only is it personal for us individually, where we have come from, the messages, experience, the history, there's also oftentimes trauma that goes along with that and the connection to all of these systems that for most of us, we're not really thinking about and recognizing exist. So I'm going to stop there. And I mean, I would pose it to you too, as well, is to think about like, what what are the first kind of money messages that you got or financial messages that you received from your family or friends or whoever kind of was involved in those formative conversations?
2: Gosh, you're really getting my brain going, Mona, because I think that's something I haven't really taken the time to think about in a long time or maybe ever but yeah i as you were talking and sort of explaining your family's viewpoints i mean mine i never had that messaging of like we are poor or we don't have money but it was very much we can't be frivolous with our money like we need to save and we need to be very careful and we i'm going to teach you the value of a dollar because you know money doesn't grow on trees so we can't just have anything and everything we want. I think of a memory that I have back when I was younger and iPods were a thing and (laughs) I just really wanted an iPod and I really wanted the newest one, you know, and I think that my parents' solution to that and not being able to purchase like the newest version of whatever was maybe getting something from a pawn shop or something like that. And so It was very much this idea of trying to find a way to provide for those wants and needs and maybe having to sometimes dress it up a little bit to make it seem like something was maybe worth a little bit more than it really was or like buying things at discount shops and stuff like that. And it was like, I think the messaging that I received was, yeah, credit is bad. You need to have the money That, you know, to purchase something and you can't just frivolously purchase. So now, yeah, I do have a hard time with, especially with bigger purchases. I mean, it can cause some stress (laughs) sometimes. And I feel like I have to know all of my options and compare and contrast like every single option and the pros and cons of everything. And just be very, very careful with how I spend my money because well, you can't just be frivolous with it. So, yeah, that's kind of what I think about when you're talking about that
1: and it's interesting that you say that because also when you were talking about ways that you would use your money if you were to win the lottery, they were also very practical, right, and like very logistical, like, oh, I would hire someone to help me with this, 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 and this, and so very thoughtful, very similar to what you're talking about in the way that you would evaluate, yeah, spending money so that like So even now you're seeing sense. You know, (laughs) kind of impacting those messages, those experiences, even to this day. Yeah. Yeah.
0: I think for me, like we I don't know if I ever really got blatant messages that we were poor, but even from a young age, like I developed a like frugal. Approach to things like my, I I don't have this memory. Like my grandmother has told me multiple times. So, like when I was little and people, she would offer to buy me something and I would say, No, you don't have to. Like it's, I want you to save your money or something like that. And, and when I would see other people buying things, I'd be like, Oh, they're like, they're like rich. And so it's interesting to wonder because a lot of those things I don't remember, but they're stories that have been told to me. And so I don't remember what might have influenced those like mentalities, even as like a, I mean, kindergarten-esque aged child. I think that a lot of the messages that I did have, like certainly impacted my relationship with credit. Like I even now I have one credit card, it's through my credit union. It's not a very high limit, like, and it scares me to think about getting a like normal credit card through like a credit, I don't know, bank. I have no idea. See, I don't even know how to like approach talking about it. And I think there was just a lot of confusion around how money works, like not, not so much like the value of money, but like checks versus credit cards versus cash and like how, what did what and how long it took and, and definitely learning how to use those different systems to make your money stretch as far as like living paycheck to paycheck. So, you might write a check towards the end of your like one pay period until you're to try to so it doesn't hit your bank until a little bit later, right, and so I think it was just it's not like as a young child, I ever didn't have anything that I needed right but but there was this sense of we're not the richest folks like in our family we're not like we can't afford everything that that some of my friends might have, and certainly, I think that my parents. A lot of the messaging, I think, was, was in relation. Not that money is not important, right? But it was messaging around, like, when I would get a birthday card. And I think I think all kids probably do this. Like, you open it, and immediately you're, like, the money inside. It's like, I'm not going to read the card. I'm not even going to ask who this was from. But I'm going to pocket this money. And so a lot of the messages from my mom in particular were, like, listen. Of course you're excited about the money. That's great. Because money is good and important. But you can't prioritize that over the relationship with this person, right? Like you have to at least pretend to read the card and then say thank you to this person before you count. There was a lot of like also social rules around it. Like you don't count money in front of people. You don't like talk about, you could talk about money, like the price of things, but you can't talk about like how much somebody makes, like how rich someone is, right? Because that would be rude. So there was a lot of that. Conversation like social rules around trying to be respectful and like honor relationships, both because of and in spite of money.
1: Yeah, that's a lot of messaging, a lot of hidden messaging, too. Some more overt, some a little bit more hidden, um, really kind of couched in social norms. And so I think one of the things that I recognized as I started doing more of this work, and in particular with TCFE was the fact that we have to begin our conversations with our history, our relationship, and our experiences with finances, with money, with economic systems, whatever we want to use the word. And we have to start there at the individual level and start to kind of recognize some of those trends, some of those messages as ourselves working in this work. And then also with, our, with the survivors that we work with and the systems that we work with. And a lot of just like the work that we do in general, we're saying, you know, we've got to, we also got to start with ourselves first and grow in our own work. That approach holds true here. And that's something that when I was doing advocacy, I remember not really recognizing the need for that. And we'll get a little bit into this. I'm sure as we talk about kind of where our movement can grow, but we have not always, in this work, prioritized individuals' experiences with money, with finances, with poverty, and and the trauma that goes along with that. Uh, goes along with that. And we often have treated these conversations around finances and resources and money in a way that was that left room for more survivor and trauma informed conversations. So I'm excited to have this conversation, but I thought it was really important to start here. So that we can kind of lay that groundwork and also
0: model it. Yeah, most definitely. I think that people, one, because a lot of those norms, a lot of people working in the movement, a lot of people connected to the movement, whether it's because they're uh, the family member of a survivor or a friend, like, we don't want to talk about money because we think it's rude. And we also... When you have money, you have a lot of privilege. And when you have privilege, it's hard to see your privilege, right? So, like, it's easy to take things for granted in the sense that, like, oh, well, the survivor is leaving their partner, so, like, they just have to get a house, right? Like, It's just, like, easy to think that everything should just kind of fall into place. Your access to things is going to be equal. But as you talked about earlier, now, like, there's credit checks for a lot of different things, and yeah, well, you,
1: yeah, everything, everything your car yeah. insurance. Yeah, car insurance. If you want to drive, if you want to set up your utilities, everything is connected.
0: Yeah. And so it's just not like being able to, and also not, I think there's just a fundamental lack of understanding of like true poverty when you think about someone who has not had access to money for potentially years and maybe they've been able to save like a coffee can of cash and that's all they have to work with like they don't have any other income they don't have like that is the like source and summit of like everything that they have the value of that money feels very different right you can't just roll up into the grocery store and be like i'm going to get the regular crackers and i'm going to get pop tarts and i'm going to like like you have to really think and that's a, in a way that that a lot of, particularly a lot of Americans just have never had to, even if you are like lower middle class or you're even like upper lower class, like a way that is often just not fathomable to a lot of people.
1: Absolutely. Yeah. So I think it's, you know, it's just important for us. And I mean, I'll just be also really frank, like in my advocacy when I did direct services, a lot of the questions are centered around what kind of access to resources do you have? And that's typically as a way to identify other resources for people, right? And so they're very well-intended questions. They have a purpose. And what we do have a responsibility to do in our work is to ensure that we are having these conversations in a way that is mindful, that is trauma-informed, that is empathetic You know, to, to the folks that we are working with. And I'm also going to say this and recognize this. What I've also found in this work, and in particular on having these conversations, is that because our movement is a low-paying movement, that we often, I often find advocates will say that they are struggling with a lot of the same financial needs and hardships that the survivors are that they're working with. And so there is a lot of other things that go alongside with that. A lot of Experiences and feelings and thoughts, and you know, it's complex. And so, it's a really hard conversation to have. It's, it's really difficult and uncomfortable feelings to sit in. And it absolutely contributes to the way that we handle these conversations. It contributes to the reason why folks have reservations around having these conversations. And it doesn't absolve us as folks who work in this domestic violence movement from having the hard conversations and also doing our own growth individually. And again, as a movement, because if we're also contributing to low paying jobs for advocates that are doing the work, then we're a part of the problem too. And so I don't want to discount that and because it it has to be addressed. So, you know, for folks that are out there doing the work, having these hard conversations is difficult, but there's a lot of people already doing it. And so no need to rewrite the script Allstate Foundation has great directive questions around this. Free From has an amazing interactive webinar that they do with folks, with advocates as well as survivors on healing from financial trauma. And then more recently, I was fortunate to be able to lead a book club on the decolonizing wealth book by Edgar Ganduela. And they talk a lot about trauma associated with money and, in particular, impacts of colonialism and capitalism and exploitation of labor. But it also has an effort, they also have a complimentary money as medicine journal. And that that has a lot of questions and it kind of gets at this conversation and like, what are those messages? What did you learn? What did you not realize you learned? And how can you recognize the relationship you've had with money and financial systems and not just again and it's tied the financial systems? How do you work through and you know begin healing with that? And so Definitely want to highlight that it is challenging, but there's a lot of a lot of resources and a lot of folks doing this work right now.
0: I actually want to pause on that book, right? And ask like what were some of the major takeaways about the impact of colonialism and capitalism on the way we approach money or the way that we focus on economics.
1: Yeah. So, you know, that was a really Awesome experience to be able to read that book and work through it alongside some different facilitators and a group of advocates. And some of the stuff that really stuck with me in this book in the book club and just reading the book was a couple pieces. There were concepts that were talked about in the books, and and, and also they're talked about in other spaces as well. There's lots of folks having these again having these conversations out there, but really touched on the impact of colonialism. And colonialism as an umbrella effect, right? And how colonialism shaped supremacy and capitalism as these two kind of core elements. And as they talked about that, and, and supremacy, let me be clear, they're talking about white supremacy. So it you know talks about as well the pieces around male supremacy in addition to that, and then human supremacy. And so this person, Edgar Villanueva, identifies as a native and to the Lumbee tribe, I believe may have pronounced it a little bit off, but I believe it's Lummi tribe. And so he is describing being in relation to other beings as well as other humans. And there is a concept of, it's called a relational worldview versus a separate separatist worldview or individual worldview. And that's a perspective that you often find in native frameworks and native belief systems and the reason why this is important is because it really kind of sets the, the tone for that understanding of what we would kind of understand as hierarchy and oppression. And the minute that we get away from a relational worldview and we get into individualistic worldviews is where we create the other, right, that we see in oppression and what we're trying to do in the anti-oppression work. And when it comes in relation to capitalism, Capitalism is that derivative of colonialism, right? Which is where we're thinking about other entities occupying, colonizing, and there is often that element of imperialism, which is the policy and economic oppression that goes along with that. So capitalism, what we see kind of as an offset of that is those pieces of oppression where we are also engaging, or capitalism is engaging in Elements of oppression and often exploitation of items. So that could be of the land, right? That could be of other humans, Um, what we have seen historically through slavery. We could also see that through occupation and exploitation of, I should say, expelling folks from their land. So what we saw in the States also of what happened to indigenous communities. And so that element of kind of imparting those capitalistic elements and the capitalism really comes from that extraction of resources at the expense of others, right, and so that's where you often will hear that x, y, z is built on x, y z right so we will hear that that kind of catchphrase used often, and that is because capitalism is often rooted in that dominance and oppression and exploitation of others. And so whether that be people or land or space or some other resource, right, it could be water, et cetera, et cetera. But those things run together alongside supremacy, because there is that entitlement, that privilege, that supremacy element, where there is a party that believes that they are entitled to that, right? And so all these things kind of are intertwined. That comes through in the book, but it's also really addressed in a lot of other spaces. I've done some trainings in the past that talk about this concept and Concept is apple, yeah, it's the word but it's also what has existed and what our history has told us. There's a person that I always reference because I have this great visual. It's by Dr. Rupert Maya, and then there's another visual that kind of shows these great Venn diagrams by uh, decolonize myself, and they those folks are a native group that has also just done similar work to make these connections around supremacy, colonialism, and capitalism. So, those were some huge takeaways for for me professionally, but also really big conversations that we got to in the book club. And that for me, I think is another starting point for us in this economic justice work as we have continued to use the word economic justice because we've talked about economic systems, how it plays, but the justice element comes when we start to address these systems that have been created in a way that is based off of colonialism, supremacy, and capitalism, again, that are not just systems. They are systems that are intentionally built to exploit and not create fair, equitable processes or outcomes. And so we have to constantly talk about the systems that we're operating within, the the systems that we're constantly constructing, so that we are actively Addressing the justice part because these are intrinsically not just systems.
2: Yeah, it sounds like a really good framework, foundation for what economic oppression is, and also a beginning taste of what economic justice is, or at least what that work aims to do. So I'm wondering what the intersection is between or maybe more in detail, what is economic justice? Like, what does that really look like? And then how does that intersect with work with survivors of domestic violence?
1: So it's interesting because as I was thinking about economic justice, not too long ago, in fact, I would say within the last year, I'm on one of the listservs here for the for the domestic violence coalitions. And we had quite a few people asking, hey, do we have a definition like of economic justice in this domestic violence movement? And it was a very interesting progression of responses that were not many, and that essentially we came to the place that, yeah, nobody really has a, a definition, a working definition. We all have our kind of own in, like, understandings of what we believe this work to be. And at the core, most of us doing this economic justice work in the DV coalitions really adopt the framework that economic justice really is kind of a set of values or principles that is really aimed at addressing the economic institutions and these different systems and really working to ensure that those systems really create opportunity for people to establish the life that they want to live with dignity and in the manner that they want to live it, right? And to me, that's the most simplistic way. That is my definition of it. That's the way I try to think about the work. There are a lot of other kind of definitions out there that also kind of take in elements like working in a way that like does XYZ, produces XYZ, enables you to live XYZ. For me, that element, is a little bit more restrictive. I like it to be focused a little bit more on kind of human dignity and human worth and the way folks want to live their life. And oftentimes, a lot of the perspectives that are shared in capitalistic societies, and in particular, American societies, those things are centered around work. And I don't think that work is the only way that people have the only mechanism that provides a person dignity and worth. And so I think that there is an element that we have to like reshape some of our conversations. That's one of the biggest kind of takeaways that for me, I think is important to, to uplift in this work. And I would just say like the values, when it comes to values in economic justice work, one of the things that I try to encourage folks to think about is rooting economic justice in values of abundance and not scarcity and a framework that really, excuse me, operates from that relational worldview as opposed to that separation worldview. So it doesn't have to be this individualistic concept, right? We don't always have to think about the bootstraps, pulling myself up framework in order for someone to be able to be of worth and value. Again, that's kind of adopting that individualistic, separatist worldview. And if we start with economic justice systems and frameworks, and that value people for their dignity and worth, and that they are people who deserve economic institutions and supports that are built to serve everybody and not inequitably serve others, then that's where we you know, can start from. So again, kind of frameworks, those are thoughts, what that looks like tangibly, it looks really different depending upon kind of where we are and what we have available to us. And we live in Texas right now. You know, this is where this podcast is happening and we like our boots. And so there is a progression, I think, of steps and strategies that we can take in Texas as we, one, operate within the current life and world and resources that we operate within here and today, and also ones that we want to move towards.
0: I think one of the things that, is challenging when it comes to EJ work is you mentioned not buying in to the scarcity mindset. And I think so often the programs that serve survivors operate like just their organization operates on a scarcity mindset because most, if not all of them are nonprofits, their money is always hard to come by or so we have framed And we don't know how to get our organization out of that mindset, which you mentioned this earlier, which leads us to pay our advocates and staff often less than we could, one, and should, two. And it's very much, it helps perpetuate that scarcity mindset among program staff, but also among survivors. Who these staff are working with. I remember working in a shelter and there would often be comments around, around this time of year, around April, when you would start seeing a lot of the residents in shelter with new hairdos or new nails. And they'd be like, oh, they shouldn't be spending their, their, yeah, they shouldn't be spending their tax money on this thing when they're trying to get a house or they're trying to get a whatever. And there would be a lot of those types of comments from staff.
1: Yeah. Yeah. And I already knew what you were, where you were going because mm-hmm. all of us who have worked in this work know. And also, we all know because those are messages that we're hearing from society as well, because we have a lot of opinions on how money should be spent and shouldn't be spent and in the way right? That people, whether or not it's it's how we would do it or not.
0: Exactly. So, and we have a lot of thoughts on poor people broadly, that poor people don't deserve nice things because they don't have the money for the nice things. Yeah. So it is just this, this mentality of scarcity one and of really just disliking poor people.
2: And also having opinions and ideas of why people are poor. Mm. And going back, Mona, to the whole Bootstraps thing, you know. Um, know. I can't think of how many times I've heard messaging around survivors. They just need to leave. They just need to leave. Like, why are they still with their abusive partner? Why don't they just leave? And then when somebody does leave and they're like, okay, now, now what's the next step? Because I need money to pay for childcare so I can have a job so I can afford three months worth of rent to get a new apartment or pay for a deposit for a new place. There are all these things that you need money for just to exist day to day, to feed yourself, to feed your children. And so when we're expecting, okay, we'll just leave. And then we have attitudes of why people are poor, meaning you're poor because you just didn't work hard enough well, now the survivor just needs, well, why doesn't he or she just go get a job? Why aren't they working? Or why don't we just have so many opinions in general on how other people should or shouldn't be living their lives. And especially I think with money, because probably something to do with me seeing you doing something that is in direct conflict to how I would spend my money makes me feel uncomfortable with my own personal choices and makes me feel like I need to question back to the conversation of the messaging that we received growing up. Do I need to question that? Is Mm -hmm. everything not as stable and as it was presented to me?
0: And the the perception is, Why do you have something nicer than I have when I perceive myself to be making more money than you?
1: Right. And so you both touch on that othering and that separatist, individualistic, capitalistic perspective. And so, and this actually really goes right into some of the the things that I was thinking about as we were kind of talking about this EJ element And our historical work and economic work in the domestic violence movement has perpetuated this. We have actually shaped a lot of our work around this. And so a lot of the work has historically looked um, and shaped around basic stabilization work. And so what that means is that it is basically like, to y'all's points, how do we just stabilize people financially and economically with a shelter and a roof over their head and some food in their belly? And them away from an immediate danger. It has not really historically looked at the bigger systems that are creating the actual environments and the circumstances of poverty, as well as disparate wealth that's limiting the survivors access to resources. And so that, that is a piece where we, as a domestic violence movement for years, you know, kind of going back, It really is focused on, you know, housing, on shelter, on public benefits. And so those social supports that really are in line with our more, lack of a better way to describe this, kind of an older framework of domestic violence work. And those stabilization efforts were minimal. And so that legacy still holds over now. We often don't see very many advocates focusing on economic supports for domestic violence survivors. Programs are required to train advocates on economic options, and so that there is at least a baseline of resources information. And oftentimes, there may be an advocate that is aware of these resources information. But going back to our framework again, if our resource is only limited to information, training, learning how to bank, financial literacy, connecting people to like a workforce, all of these are great resources and are all stabilization resources. And they don't also offset the other crisis needs. So they are not putting dollars in people's pockets. They are not necessarily getting someone a job. They are not necessarily ensuring that someone's going to have a year's worth of X, Y, Y income coming in, right? Or that they will have a job that's going to be above the living wage and, in fact, the thriving wage. And so those supports have been shaped for a long time really focusing on stabilization efforts. And we are in a time in our domestic violence movement where we are really putting energy into this next phase. And I have seen those efforts begin to happen. And they also are kind of in those beginning stages.
0: Another thing that we perpetuate as a society comes to domestic violence survivors is the idea that survivors are poor. And we know that Domestic violence can impact people from all economic classes. And so certainly money can be a protective factor. It can certainly help. But we've seen even some like, high-profile like celebrity domestic violence cases where this celebrity has money, but that doesn't spare them from domestic violence and can often have them financially abused in a different way. Um, so, it's financial abuse is not something that just impacts poorer people. It can certainly be used by perpetrators of of survivors who do have wealth of some degree.
2: Yeah, that makes Absolutely. that makes me really think of like if we're thinking of some maybe particular intersections. Like, for example, maybe some beliefs around. Like, for example, if somebody is religious. And that religion has told them that money is an idol or you can't value money or that once you're in a relationship, once you're in a marriage, to become one. And so then all of your money is shared. And so even if you're in a financially abundant state of being within a relationship, that can complicate things, right? And so it's almost like, yes, that abuse can happen like with or without the money, right? But I think, yeah, you're right. It's just different, right? Those impacts are are different or the way that it's used as a tool against your partner is different.
0: Yeah, just because you're making, even if you're making more money than your partner, doesn't mean that your partner is not financially abusing you. And so thinking about the various ways that 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 can be done and the ways that EJ work can help someone protect themselves against that. Or even after the relationship is over, thinking about the divorce proceedings and how often it's like, well, you got to split your assets down the middle and you've got to do all of these things. Even when one partner was clearly abusive to another, like there are still cases where the abusive partner is owed money.
1: So glad. Yeah, I'm so glad you said that, because we often just also recognize that monetary value. And in my direct service work that I did feels like a lifetime ago, you know, some of that was under a family law attorney. And it is not uncommon for the outcome and those financial outcomes of divorces to not be equitable, to not be really fair, and for the survivors to walk away feeling like they didn't get the support that they needed. And in some cases, for the survivor to have to pay that abusive partner. And that question comes back to money is not the only thing. We also have our financial well-being or mental health or physical well-being as a source of value and currency to ourselves. And so that also is something that is of value. And so we have to kind of contextualize you know sometimes for people there may be a financial cost and at the same time they are preserving their own mental health or me- their mental well-being or you know and their and their spirits for folks so yeah. it's a lot. it's complicated
0: yeah and on the other end of the spectrum right going back to when a survivor is oh this doesn't sound right but like the poorer partner the less financially blessed partner when you get into those separations, right? This is going back to economics is everything. We're going to make that hashtag be alive.
1: I hate it. I hate it. I hate that I've used it for so long because I'm trying to get away from like, I feel like I'm reinforcing it. You know what I mean? Like I'm reinforcing a negative like piece that I'm trying to grow away from. But you know, that's, you know. Yeah,
0: but it does impact. It does impact everything because you think about somebody's ability to retain a lawyer and somebody's ability to navigate We recently had an episode where we talked about custody. Uh, The whole episode wasn't about custody, but this example got used in that children are often leveraged because the abusive partner owns the house, they're able to provide food, right? And so, but that all has to do with economics, but then it bridges into parenthood and your ability to provide for your family and keep your family safe even though that partner is an abusive partner and even if they have like proof that they're an abusive partner they're able to shelter and feed the children and so our like mental collective societal understanding is well they have the money to support this person And i'm like but they have abusive behaviors so are they actually safer and it's trying to balance that out right
1: There's been a lot of studies and research that also have proven that in heterosexual couples where there's a male partner and a female partner, self-identified male and female partners, when they divorce and the female partner takes the children with them, their ability to economically thrive actually like decreases by like 20%. Like it's kind of crazy. And then exponentially reduces because of the cost of, you know, the financial impacts of the cost of having their children with them when there is actual financial support. So it, there's, there's a lot of pieces that are all very complicated and all attached there. And we don't really talk a lot about those kinds of pieces, not to mention impacts on families, a family size. And so that's a whole nother thing that I'm sure you can get into in a health topic <laughs> when it comes to reproductive health for health for people.
2: Mona, I'm wondering if we're thinking about the future of economic justice work, where should we be moving toward? Like, what is the direction that we're going in? And are we close? Are we on the right path?
1: <laughs> yeah, that's a big question. So I touched on this a little bit. We have to have those frameworks, right, to guide us. And so I do, and frameworks and values. And I do think that we really can work to align our domestic violence EJ work a little bit more towards some of that abundance framing and really starting from that place. I think that's really critical. And I do think it's really important to really start a lot of that social change work and be clear. And we, we can't be shy around our language. We have to be really bold. And I know that's scary. And it might sound a little bit weird, but I think this is where prevention really is at the heart of this work and it is needed in every element, but I think that social change, the cultural change really can begin with working in prevention. We have to shift away from that individualistic framing that we talked about that bootstraps, that making it as being wealthy and a financial means as the only mechanism for lifting up things. We really need to move more towards our relational efforts and lifting up things that are accomplishments and a value. Um, being communal, being of more things that are family oriented, community based and things that that don't just benefit one, but benefit family, benefit community, benefit others. Um, and I think that's a, that is a social change issue. And I think that's a place where folks are working, working in prevention and working out in community organizing and us as individual advocates can work to do. And as we start that social change shift, then these other pieces will come alongside. I think there's more systems work that has to be done as someone who works in policy, lots of room for growth in policy. And in particular, we have to really also focus on some of this policy and systems work. So we talked earlier about our current financial systems and the inequities in those. So we have the opportunity to address these things we talked about how these systems in particular are rooted in colonialism and imperialism and capitalism, but these are still structures, like our financial institutions and structures need to be revised while we're also creating new financial systems that don't really possess the same inequities. And so just some like kind of examples of these things are credit. When we're talking about credit, we took some time to talk about some of the our individual pieces there, but within our credit system, it doesn't, it touches everything. And this is one of the things that those money messages that I learned earlier on no longer really hold. You ha- you can't avoid credit systems because of their impact on our ability to not just thrive, but live in this country right now at this time. And so one of the ways that we can start to do that is by really simply mandating that positive rental, positive pieces be reported on credit reports, not just delinquent ones. So when Someone, for example, pays the rent on time or pays their utility bill on time. That's a positive marker as opposed to just when someone is late or delinquent. And those are more equitable in the sense that oftentimes folks who may not have already established credit, folks with lower income or who may not have come from generational wealth, don't automatically jump into those systems. They often may only have rental history as a means of credit. And so that's one of the things where we can start to make some impact around a current system with a new kind of law. We can also look at work that is more tax reform. I was kind of made the trickle down economics pun earlier, but we all heard that story about Warren Buffett paying less tax than his secretary a few years back, right? And so we have to really think about how our current tax system disproportionately benefits those already with wealth and those who are going to continue to exponentially increase that work wealth by disproportionately negatively impacting folks that don't have that wealth or don't make that income. And so those are just some policy things that can make bigger impacts now. And the other things that I would just say in alignment with the culture change work that we have to do is that while we make some of these social change efforts around shifting from individualism to some more community and collective benefits, We have to make sure that we're talking about the educational elements and acknowledging the continued legacy of colonialism and imperialism and exploitation that our current, again, economic systems were founded on and continue to perpetuate. And we also have to acknowledge that our government still has a role in supporting the people that are living in this country and that are engaging in the different financial institutions. And so they have that responsibility to help support addressing those inequitable policies and correcting those.
0: Yeah. And again, there's just so much that has to do with economics and economic justice and so many things that we can do to reform our systems to even before we reform them, just recognizing some of the intersections and impacts of those systems.
1: On top of healthcare supports for us and for the survivors that we work with there's some easy, tangible things that are being done now that have been shown to work. Cash support directly to survivors. Free From has been doing this work for a few years now and actually helped Texas survivors back when we had the winter freeze with great success. And, you know, kind of final win and a just something to elevate and to acknowledge about the work. And this also shows this progression of the work is that, you know, we just passed the reauthorization of the Bonds Against Women's Act, also known as BAWA. Just a few days ago, it is March 2022. It has been expired since 2018, and with this new revision, there was the addition of the definition of economic abuse, and that is huge. That is something that had not been recognized in the definition of VAWA historically, and now includes it. And so, this is our landmark legislation. It really guides a lot of the work, and so we have seen now the growth of the movement in different ways and bringing in this formalized definition is another way that we can actually see that change happening and seeing the prioritization of this economic justice work be put into law. And so that's a big deal. So those are a few of the kind of directions and big wins of where I think we are and can continue to grow the work.
0: Yeah, we got to celebrate VAWA. There was a long time coming this last reauthorization so that's definitely a big win for ej work but also just for domestic violence advocates and survivors and programs so glad that you brought vawa up
1: insert the like clapping and cheering track there
0: yes exactly <laughs> i wish i had special effects like that mona this has been great, has been great. i always i always love talking to you thank you
1: sometimes I don't feel like they're even I know this is for a podcast but you know it could easily have just been a random zoom conversation
0: (laughs) yeah yeah throws us back to the days in the office when we were actually having conversations
1: our our pod days our pod days when you would scoot my chair over to you and chat with you
0: right so thank you for being here Samantha Always a pleasure. I'm glad that you're becoming a more permanent part of the podcast. So I hope as I've been told many times, you have a voice for podcasts. So people are enjoying <laughs> your presence <laughs> you on the podcast.
1: Too. You have such a soothing and very calming voice and presence. I know as you laugh, but it is true. It is it is very true. So I think you and William compliment each other very well too.
2: Thank you. Maybe one day I will be able to review and edit these podcasts and not cringe at my voice. So it'll (laughs) happen. Thanks, thanks for that. Um, I don't know if that ever
1: happens. I feel (laughs) like you know, just whenever you, I've listened to some webinars or things like that in the past, and I'm like, hard.
0: (laughs) You Um, get used to it. You get used to it. I mean, so anyway. Mona, thank you so much. We hope that some folks learned some stuff. You mentioned a few resources throughout the episode that we will put in the episode description. And of course, if you have any questions about the episode, you can email us. Our email will be in the episode description. Until next time, have a great one. Yeah,